0: Potential negative consequences of applying a fungicide would not be nearly as bad as the potential impact of losing your plants to a detrimental plant pathogen. Based on this study, someone asks, hey, I got milky plants, I wanna increase their vigor, uh, increase you know the survival of my, my caterpillars and or defenses against uh, birds and other things. Should I get this product that is a Arbuscular, mycorrhizal, fungi. Hi, my name is Irfan Vafai with Texas AM and AgriLife Extension. And I'm Vikram Baliga with Texas Tech University. And this is Jolly Green Scientists, a podcast where we digest research articles and findings from trade magazines pertaining to the green industry and regurgitate them for you. And this week, we are discussing a paper by Amanda R. Mayer and Mark D. Hunter, published in 2018, entitled Mycorrhizae, Alter Toxin Sequestration and Performance of Two Specialist Herbivores. It's a lot of words. A lot of big words. It's a lot, a lot of big words. But this is going to be a very exciting, uh, very exciting one this week because we're talking about how fungi below ground can potentially impact plant defenses against herbivores above ground,
1: things that are gonna eat those plants. And it's really interesting, uh, as we'll get into, but there's this interesting commensalism between the insects and the plants themselves, where some of these plant defense compounds actually accumulate in the bodies of the insects themselves. And they use that as a, a deterrent for predators. And so, from a management standpoint that, I guess, it presents some interesting challenges, right? Like if, if um, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, or uh, what, AMF, is that, that I that's, think that's
0: a, Yeah, that's what they abbreviated as. This AMF, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. So mycorrhizal fungi are just like symbiotic
1: fungi with plant roots, right? Yeah, they just grow on the roots. Uh, typically, they're gonna help with nutrient and water uptake. It's more important in some species than others. Uh, the plants can, most plants can survive without uh, a mycorrhizal association, but some plants, uh, notably some orchids, have to have that because of poorly adapted root systems, uh, climatic issues, um, you know, ecological issues. So uh, it, it, they, they help the plant in a lot of ways in general. And we're just now really starting to understand all the ways in which these interactions work.
0: Yeah. And so this this study is headed by Dr. Amanda uh, Mayer or Meyer. I apologize if I have uh, mispronounced your last name. Uh, She's a postdoctoral researcher currently at Washington State University in uh, Pullman, United States. Uh, And she's a community ecologist uh, and this is straight from our bio, interested in understanding the mechanisms underlying interactions among microbes, plants, and insects, and the consequences of those interactions uh, for those communities. This is like a uh, a hot topic uh, kind of these days where we're just starting to understand the role that microbes and microbiomes, right? this like community of uh, microorganisms that live in the ground and how they can impact, uh, ecosystems
1: and how important they are in ecosystems. For sure. And just just looking at some of the basic findings and things that they looked at in this study, it's really fascinating. So these plants produce these toxins called cardenolides in the plant tissues. Uh, and, and what they were looking at in this study is One, if the mycorrhizae affect the amount of cardenolides produced in the tissues, if it affected plant growth in any way, and then also how that affected the insects that were preying upon them. So they looked particularly, in this case, at the oleander aphid and at the monarch butterfly caterpillar. We talk a lot about monarchs. They're, they're super popular insect, right? And hosts on milkweed, they lay their eggs on milkweed, and one of the, the things we talk about a lot is how they eat the milkweed to build up these toxins, these cardenolides, in their system and make them toxic to potential predators.
0: Yeah, I'd done this um, this calculation for... It was a presentation I did around Halloween. So it was like spooky insects. And <laughs> in my attempt to make monarch butterflies spooky, I spoke about how toxic they are and how if you were to eat one and a half quarts of monarch <laughs> butterfly blood, it would be the LD50. Like, there's a good chance it might kill you based off of some some numbers I crunched from from some publications. So... Don't, ooh, monarch
1: butterfly blood is creepy. And, and that's just the blood, right? So if you scale that up to a total number of caterpillars or, or butterflies, that's uh, you have to eat a lot of butterflies.
0: The data I looked at, like only looked at, you know, their hemolymph, like how much cardenolide gets in their blood. So I wasn't <laughs> sure how to translate that to like how many caterpillars oh you have to gosh. eat. I was like, you know, this is fine. Talking about monarch butterfly caterpillar like blood and how much you have to drink is creepier. It's, anyway. it's pretty
1: creepy. I've I've definitely seen a kid eat a monarch butterfly.
0: Oh gosh, like the butter the larva? No, like like a butterfly. <laughs> oh my
1: gosh, so, my wife. That'd be bitter. Uh, yeah, I'd be. It'd, I think yeah, I think are kind of like bitter, aren't they? Yeah, and so uh, two of the things I've seen is that one. Predators will avoid them because of the, you know, it's a long-term evolutionary relationship, but the two schools of thought are that it's toxic, you know, to the predator. Although, like we were just talking about, it would have to be in a fairly large concentration in general, even with a bird or something else uh, to really cause a lot of damage. But the other thought is that they just taste bad. Right? Like they're they're gonna get eaten, they taste bitter uh, and and they spit it out. But no, my my wife works at a science museum and they've had a butterfly exhibit there before where they had a mix of uh, tropicals and and um, yeah tropical exotic butterflies and uh, domestic or not domestic native butterflies. I was in there one day, I volunteered a couple times, and there is this little boy. Probably two or three, just chasing this butterfly around, and we, you know, we all all the time don't chase the butterflies, don't grab the butterflies, don't eat don't, the butterflies. Don't, don't, don't. Well, yeah, well, I didn't think that needed to be said. <laughs> so this butterfly lands, this little boy runs up and grabs. Which I was impressed, actually, right? Like they're yeah, fairly yeah, fairly fast catching a butterfly is pretty good. And, and I think like me and other people and the mom all saw it happening, and it was just too fast, right? Oh no, Bef- yeah. Poor, poor butterfly <laughs> but it was I, and i'm like you know i'm in a in a uniform or like an apron that says i'm a volunteer there and i'm trying not to laugh cuz it was so funny but anyway that is a we huge... call so we call that, so that top down suppression right That's so exactly in this right. article
0: right they're like looking at uh, when you're talking about like population dynamics or population growth there's top down right. and bottom up effects so top down is like you know a kid just ate you uh, and that's a predator, right? That's just eating you. And and then you got mm-hmm. bottom up, which is like uh, lack of uh, resources in the soil or accessibility of those nutrients. And they've shown that the, this these fungi AMF can help with both. They can make some of those nutrients more accessible in some cases, and in some cases they can also make the uh, say the you know a higher concentration of cardenolides in the herbivores and thus protect. The herbivores from predators, or it might increase the cardenolides and or toxins towards the herbivores themselves, depending on what they are. And so the the interactions are highly complex. And I think, you know, like I'm I'm already throwing a, a takeaway here is that these things are not linear. It's not A equals B. It's always highly complicated. And as we'll see here, you know, even as you increase the concentration of these fungi and and their availability in the soil, there's not a linear relationship with how it affects the plants, the herbivores, and or the amount of toxin in those herbivores, the amount that they actually sequester. What they're using as their model organism here is milkweed plants. And, you know, you already said Two of the herbivores they're looking at are those aphids uh, because they feed by sucking on the plant phloem, sucking on the plant juices, uh, versus the monarch caterpillars, which chew on the plant. So two very different feeding mechanisms. And so they predict that there's going to be a different impact of this AMF, again, this fungi that's in the soil, on aphids and uh, the, the butterflies just because of how they feed differently. And so they do what's called a full factorial experiment, right? So they have a number of treatments. So they have four different species of milkweed plants because it's already been shown that different milkweed plants can have different amounts of cardenolides. And right. so they want to see, you know, if you if you naturally have different levels of cardenolides, how does that interact with this fungi in the soil? And then they also have uh, four different levels of fungi availability, and they manipulate that by basically cooking some of the, uh, the fungi. And then lastly, they either have no herbivores or have either the aphids or have the monarch butterfly uh, larva on there. They basically allow those both of those herbivores to feed on there for about six days. And then from there, they are measuring, you know, how quickly did the aphid population grow? Uh, They're looking at how much of the leaf material was consumed by the caterpillars. They're looking at um, the amount of uh, white latex that's produced by the milkweed, which is another plant defense. Um, They look at the leaf tissue toughness. They also look at the amount of cardenolides, either concentrated in the leaves or in the herbivores. So they then just, they basically just measure a bunch of stuff, right? They're like trying to figure out what are these interactions? And, you know, it's very interesting. So they, what they use, right? They're like, where do they get this fungi from? They actually, again, there's some companies that provide them, right? And so the one that they use here is known as mycorrhizal applications, pretty intuitive name. Yeah, it seems (laughs) that way. Guess what
1: they do? Pretty on the nose there.
0: Right. And um, it's kind of interesting because the product that they use uh, claims that it has four different species of mycorrhizal mycorrhizal, uh, fungi uh, in equal proportions. And when they actually try and isolate those fungi, so these molecular tools, they only find one of the species in there. Personally, I think this is an important note. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because like whenever we're like, this is something very cautious about, right? Like when we're dealing with um, companies or or products that let's say are not EPA registered, all right? So uh, usually when we're having to go through some type of EPA registration for Uh, a plant product, there's a number of, uh, say, regulatory hoops that jump through. Whereas when they do not have an EPA number, it's a little bit easier to get by with things that uh, perhaps are not as accurate. So in this case, maybe the quality control wasn't as good. Uh, Maybe they've never had four different species in there. Um, I mean, you know, so it's quite interesting from that standpoint that you're not getting what they say that they're giving you, And this, this might be the root cause of us, our our first litigation case and
1: us getting sued for the first time here on the (laughs) show. We'll, we'll find out. Let's, let's hope, let's hope not. But but it's interesting because that, that does apply industry wide, I think. And sure. Um, but you do see it a lot in all, a lot of these, uh, biofungicides, bioinsecticides or organic, more organic type products. Right. And, and for one thing, it's an interesting balance, right? Because if you're selling it to, or or if you're buying it as an industry professional, you're probably not going in gene sequencing or isolating out a, uh, you know, specific fungi, right? Right. You're going to apply it, and you're going to hope that it works or that it doesn't. And if it does, great. If it doesn't, you know, okay, that's that stuff happens. But right. When we get to research that becomes pretty important yeah uh, making sure that we're we're validating our tools and I think that that from a research standpoint that it's very meaningful for the industry right mm-hmm. I think it's good that we're taking these products that are maybe um, either less regulated or not registered or whatever and actually really diving in to does it do what it says it does right you know are getting down to the roots of that product and of that technology yeah getting on to kind of the results. And, and what they actually found, right?
0: So as expected, as, as was already known, they find differences between the different milkweed plants. They find different levels of, uh, the proportion of, of colonization by this fungi. They find differences in foliar cardenolide concentrations, um, in diversity of cardinalides. So it's actually a certain class of, of chemicals yeah. or molecules. So they find a a, lo- a greater diversity, so on and so forth. So there's differences between the different milkweeds. Now, when it's colonized by the fungi, uh, there's only a significant... Well, it's not even technically significantly different. It's very close, very strong trend, we could say, in foliar cardenolide concentration. Yes. So we basically don't find any huge differences, at least based on what they measured. And they measured a lot of things on these plants. They did not see any major differences when there was colonization by this fungi. However, what's really interesting is when we start looking at the herbivores that are feeding on it. So when there was colonization with that fungi, they find higher aphid cardenolide concentration. They find higher uh, cardenolide concentration in the caterpillars. Uh, they also find a greater diversity of cardenolides in the caterpillars. I think they even find greater aphid uh, population growth when there was that fungi on there. A yep. uh, greater individual mass of the aphids as well. So they find all these interesting attributes that affect the herbivore ultimately, uh, even though they couldn't measure anything off of the plant, any differences off the plant.
1: Yeah, and that's really fascinating. It's almost like it's acting like a pass-through, right? Like right. if there's no herbivory, then it's not bioaccumulating because it doesn't need to. And, and one thing that was interesting that they point out here is that there's actually a um, physiological effect on the plant as this accumulation goes up with some of these amf fungi uh they they actually saw with and I, I with one of the species uh that the plants were smaller right they're not getting quite the above ground biomass of the plant itself when this accumulation was uh being built into the plant and i think that's a really interesting result yeah it, it, it was it was really interesting they made a point um in, in the introduction i know we're going back a little bit that sometimes these plant uh, physiology or physiological traits and growth forms actually alters a little bit to make predation on their predators easier. Right. Whether it's a more open canopy or larger leaves to the sun where, you know, a, a, their predator's predator, you know, uh, c- can actually get to them. So that's a possible, um, I think, explanation for that. Another thing is that a lot of these compounds are expensive for the plant to produce, right? Even with these mycorrhizal associations. So if they don't need it, they're metabolizing and recycling it back into the uh, the system or whatever else. So it's just an, an interesting concept. There.
0: Hmm, yeah. Yeah. And like you had mentioned, I think, uh, yeah, there's two species that they find decrease in biomass as a result of the AMF colonization. There's one that they specifically mentioned that has a trend towards increasing the average biomass with AMF colonization. And again, it's like, it just goes to show how specific the interactions can be between these fungi and their plant hosts and, resultingly, their herbivores and their predators and so on and so forth.
1: So so looking at, at some of the results, I think there were a couple of pretty meaningful things. Um, so they did see that both aphids, again, we've, we've mentioned this, but both aphids and caterpillars do sequester higher concentrations of cardenolides if the plants are uh, inoculated with the mycorrhizal fungi yeah um but it also what i thought was very interesting they make a point that it also influences the overall performance um of the insects whether that is through their uh, avail- their biomass their colony numbers all that and some of it was positive some of it was negative from the standpoint of the insect but it did have a, a pretty marked effect on the insects themselves as well
0: and it wasn't linear with uh, the availability of AMF. So you know, again, they manipulated the amount of that fungi that was in the soil. You know, from like yeah. nothing to a lot, uh, and and they had four rates uh, total. And it wasn't a linear. It was never a linear relationship. Where as you increased it, you know, aphid performance increased. Like there was usually some kind of a a, a hump. Let's say that above that, you know, maybe you have decreased performance or, or vice versa. And some interesting numbers. So across the milkweed species, when like looking at all the milkweed species together. Uh, in the paper, they say aphids sequestered on average eighty-seven percent and thirty-six percent higher cardenolide concentrations when feeding upon plants under medium and high AMF availability, respectively. Right. So, like, there's an example right there where the medium AMF, uh, sorry, at yeah, the medium AMF availability, they increase cardenolides by eighty-seven percent high availability was 36%. So for some reason, there's like a (laughs) drop-off. And similar things with the caterpillar, I sequestered 38% and 25% higher cardenolite concentrations when fed upon plants under medium and high AMF inoculum availability.
1: Yeah, there's an interesting uh, diminishing returns point, it seems like, Mm -hmm. um, both from the plant standpoint and the insect standpoint. And whether that is thinking from the insect standpoint that the accumulation of this i mean what is essentially a a plant defense toxin
0: yeah
1: can overwhelm i guess the um insect's ability to metabolize or store it in tissue and it actually does maybe cause some deleterious effect deleterious effects like it's supposed to um you know we talked a, a little bit about we have talked a little bit in the past too about tolerance to some of these things i think and um a lot of it is just at what point can the plant overwhelm the tolerance of the insect? Yeah, so bringing it back to to actual professional landscape
0: and or grower application, another thing to consider, right? Even if you're not applying AMFs, right? Like you're like, I'm not gonna apply this stuff. You might have some naturally occur- occurring in your field, in your landscape beds, uh, in, in your pots, or whatever it might be. And what's really interesting to think is whether fungicides would have any negative impacts on these AMFs. And if so, how does that affect your bottom-up suppression of herbivores? Because ultimately that's kind of what's important in this case. That's where you you might see some really um, interesting things going on where you might make an application and you all of a sudden have a secondary outbreak of a particular pest. Or it might have, you know, the reverse role. It might help suppress that pest. Because again, these interactions are all quite complex in terms of how they might actually impact the
1: herbivores. Absolutely. And there's some big differences there probably on the production side and the uh, consumer or or in situ usage side, right? So a lot of times these... Plants are being used to uh, restore ecosystems, to increase uh, forage and host material for these. um, Well, on one side, for the butterflies as they they move their way through. And um, so in that situation, I would think in general, the the risk of... um, you know, AMF depletion through fungicide application would be fairly low because in general, you know, they're, they're in pasture lands, they're in wetlands in some case, um, uh, depending on the species of milkweed. But I think that really comes into play in like in a greenhouse production industry or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because there are, you know, a lot of this, these plants are seeded out in it directly into the landscape uh, because they're wildflowers, whatever. But, but, People are, as people get more and more interested in purchasing milkweed for the landscape, which is great. I think that's a thing we should be doing. True. Um, yeah, because we, we spoke earlier about how, uh, I guess in the pre recording time, we were talking about how they actually got a, a thrips infestation on their plants yeah. because it was grown in a greenhouse. Uh-huh. Right. So, and and there was a line of that was funny because they, funny to me as, as a greenhouse guy. That they were like, well, we stopped insecticide applications three weeks before starting this, which makes sense, right? They don't want to have... And then they said uh, uh, thrips were removed and killed by hand. (laughs) I don't know if anyone out there has seen a thrips, (laughs) but it's like if you took a grain of rice and like cut it up into 100 pieces, that that's like a yeah. yeah, yeah. so that I was thinking of the poor grad student that had to do this but um right
0: yeah that's what I was thinking was was who had to go through there and and look for these small things
1: and try and crush them by hand
0: and but, They had some I, flowering, so I guess like they'd have to beat them out of the flowers and crush them. <laughs> like, yeah,
1: no, not much fun. Yeah, yeah, not much fun. Yeah, grad school is not for the for the meek at heart. Um, <laughs> but but I guess the point I was making is that you're going to get uh, different pest problems in general pest and disease problems. So yeah, in the greenhouse environment, if you were trying to use an AMF. For um, just overall plant protection, plant health, whatever that could be a real concern as you started to get different kinds of greenhouse-grown, you know, different fungal infections in there.
0: Uh, let's say I am growing milkweed, uh, whether I be a grower or I might be like a master gardener group for monarch butterflies, for right. specifically for uh, creating a butterfly garden. Should I not use fungicides? Hmm.
1: Fungicide specifically, I th- so I I would say that fungicide use is still, if necessary, is still probably beneficial, um, and I say that because I think the um, the downside of losing plants to uh, a fungal infection, some kind of fungal disease. Probably outweighs the benefits that your or could outweigh the benefits you get through some of these uh, different cardinalide production and, and the um, d- the insect defenses that passes through to the insect. So you know, in some cases, I guess it's science, right? So it depends, right? That's our that's our canned answer right. that we throw at people. Well, it depends. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It happens. <laughs> uh, something happens. But the fact of the matter is, if if my if my choices are have a plant or don't have a plant. Um, I'm choosing whichever treatment lets me have a target plant there, right? Even right. if it does decrease some of these compounds, even if it does maybe um, change the utility of the plant in some ways to the butterfly, to the the caterpillar, um, I still think that in the case of... Um, a situation where fungal infection from a you know, non-desirable type of fungus is likely, I would probably pre-treat or treat preventatively um, with a fungicide. Um, that being said, if, it depends on your conditions. If you're in a place where it's uh, warmer, drier, uh, there's not really a history of, of fungal disease, then yeah, I, w- I would just not. I wouldn't worry about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. So they don't, it, you know, like, even the relationship between amf availability and the caterpillar survival is not linear and was different for each of the milkweed species right so in some of them having amf you know increased survival whereas in other ones having amf may have decreased survival right and none of it was really significantly statistically significantly different so it was just kind of trends so yeah i think i'd agree with you that you know you have to ultimately make a choice if you had to ultimately make a choice, I'd say at least based on this study, it would support that applying a fun- the the potential negative consequences of applying a fungicide would not be nearly as bad as the potential impact of you know losing your plants to a detrimental plant pathogen, like you mentioned.
1: well, absolutely. and that and that's a a very common concern in the industry in 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 I think all plant industries, you know when do you treat, when do you what's your you know action threshold if if we want to use an IPM term uh, (laughs) right for um, for treatment and we you know my family has a a small peach orchard and that's something we look at a lot we we minimize our sprays but we do get some um, fungal issues we do get some insect issues and it's like how much loss can you tolerate what at what point do you spray and I think that that crosses the this whole green industry quite a bit like action thresholds are a big thing that we should talk more about. Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's another hard-hitting question
0: that might, again, lead us into another lawsuit. Someone <laughs> asks,
1: someone oh, asks... We're, we're so going to get fired before we go yeah. to <laughs> this. <laughs> so
0: based on this study, right? Based on this study, um, someone asks, hey, I got milky plants. I want to increase their vigor, uh, increase you know, the survival of my, my caterpillars and or defenses against uh, birds and other things should I get this product (laughs) that is a arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, you know, it has four different fungi in there that is supposed to help
1: uh, increase uh, the the survival of my plant and my caterpillars? Well, it has one mycorrhizal fungi in it, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, again, man, that's such a hard question to answer. I would say from the data... Uh, maybe, maybe not, because we didn't see a lot of accumulation in the the leaf tissue. We didn't see a lot of um, there were you know some some differences in in um, biomass, but they were across across the board. Looking at the the data from the plants themselves, fairly fairly minor, right? Um, Only in a couple of cases. And in some cases, it was actually a decrease in plant size. And as you mentioned, there was an interesting inflection point there, very nonlinear in terms of uh, actually benefits to the caterpillars. Uh, I think personally, if I was in an environment that was conducive to soil microbiota, right? So if I'm in a place that has decent... They um, had decent soil organic matter, good moisture, um, good soil quality. I might not apply a whole lot of uh, additional AMF because chances are pretty good that stuff is already there. It's ubiquitous in the environment. Right now, if you carry that over to somewhere like Lubbock, America, where I live, where it you know we have like 0.2 percent soil organic matter and it's dry and it's hot and the wind blows and the you know the tumbleweeds blow and all the jackrabbits <laughs> cry all the time I don't know uh, I might think about applying something like this to give your plant and your insects as much of ev- an competitive advantage in the in the ecosystem as possible
0: yeah so like one one thing that's kind of interesting that you know they didn't measure in this and it, because it's impossible to measure everything in a study right but yeah. they They indirectly measured it, I guess, in a way in terms of looking at how would this affect top-down suppression. So they did find increased cardenolides and cardenolide diversity in the caterpillars. So the next question naturally would be, does that then increase their survival against predators. Are predators less likely to eat them or more right. likely to spit them out before <laughs> I don't know doing detrimental damage, not very likely but but maybe maybe it increases, um, you know their their defenses against their natural enemies. But that being said, yeah, I would lean on the same kind of train of thought that you went with in that in general, we don't know what the overall pattern is, right? Like here, it's not super consistent because it depends on, again, species and it depends on the amount of AMF. And again, you don't know what kind of AMF you're getting. Mm -hmm. Um, Anytime I am, you know, trying to make a suggestion, someone asks, you know, what do I use to kill aphids on whatever? And I have to come up with a group of insecticides. Um, I usually am trying to summarize several studies for each insecticide. Right. Because there might be 10. And if five of them say it works really well and five say it doesn't work well, then that's kind of an unreliable insecticide. It depends highly on environmental conditions. Whereas if it's consistently good in all 10 studies, it's several different authors and different conditions, that's a pretty reliable product. And that's where, again, you know, we come to this product that it, it claims that it is one thing that so far, at least based on this study, it's not that thing, <laughs> right? Does not seem to be, <laughs> or it's at least, or it's just one fourth of that thing, right? And uh, and the actual impact on the plants is pretty variable. So this is just one piece of information I'd look at, right? Like I'd try and see if there's more studies on that specific product before saying, yeah, like I think this this is helpful based on the data or not helpful based on the data. So it's kind of hard to make uh, uh, definitive conclusions here. And I think that
1: uh, we may have mentioned this on our previous episode, but I think that's something that's a point that can be made more than once too, that one study does not equal consensus, right. right? Scientific consensus. And I think that's so important to understand in the field, but even just at a larger scale in society. Yeah. Right. Like you see one paper, it says a thing, and that's good. Those are all pieces to the puzzle. And that's why we keep writing papers to add more pieces to that puzzle. Yeah. Uh, but but like you say, um, one paper does not equal consensus. And so with more testing, I think that it's possible that, you know, some of this stuff may be really beneficial. Uh, right. it's just it's hard to know.
0: Yeah. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna keep an eye on this, some of the stuff, because it's kinda interesting. And it so is. maybe we'll We'll come back to it in a future episode when there's more. Well, that's all we got for this week. Thank you so much for listening in, and uh, we'll see you next time. We want to invite you to listen. If you like hearing about the plant stuff, I want to invite you to listen to Planthropology,
1: which is hosted by Vikram. And if you're more into the bug side, go listen to Talking Bugs. And also, um, if you're a Facebook-type human, there are Facebook groups for all three shows. uh, look for Plantthropology's Cool Plant People. Um, and there's also one for Jolly Green Scientists and another for Talking Bugs. So go join those. There's already been some really fun conversation in all the groups. Thank you so much for joining us. and Until next time. Boop. What, what, hey, okay. I don't I was know like, what happened. Was I supposed, I supposed to next. say anything? I, I don't know. I, after, I think that was it. I don't know what, until, the si-
0: what my sign off was going to be. Until
1: next time. <laughs> Let's just be like, what's going to happen? What? <laughs> well, bye.